Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the show on a one-time basis by mail uh, by sending uh, donations to Adam Graham, P.O. Box 15913-15913, Boise, Idaho 83715. And you can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month. I want to thank Double Tap Hillbilly for moving his support from the Seamus level of $4 or more per month to the Chief of Detectives level of $30 or more per month. Again, thank you so much for your support. Now it's time for this week's episode of The Silent Men. The original air date is December the 16th, 1951. And this one is The Bogus G.I. Now, The Silent Men bring you thrilling listening on NBC. Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. in The Silent Men. The National Broadcasting Company proudly presents Douglas Fairbanks' production of The Silent Men. Transcribed stories of the undercover operations of the special agents of every branch of our federal government and their relentless fight against crime. Now here is Douglas Fairbanks. In the main, a special agent's work is based on scientific fact and cold calculation. Seldom may an agent permit himself the luxury of personal emotions where a case is concerned. However, in tonight's story... It was with a great deal of personal satisfaction that Special Agent Fred Thompson helped apprehend and convict the bogus serviceman Sam Taylor. For of all the criminals who infest this great land of ours, none is as vicious as those who prey on the grief and suffering of families who have lost loved ones in the armed services of our country. In tonight's story, I play the role of Special Agent Fred Thompson in the file case entitled The Bogus G.I of which only the names and places are fictional. The latest of these servicemen's families to be victimized was a Mrs. Dorothy Blake, a widow in St. Cloud, Minnesota. She worked in a small food processing plant. I walked through the factory and opened the door to the shop foreman's office. What can I do for you? I'd like to speak to Mrs. Blake. It's important. What about? There's a company rule... This is no personal call. Here, take a look at my identification. Uh, Yes, sir. Why didn't you say so? I'll have her here in a minute. Yes, sir. Uh, Mrs. Blake? Yes? She's coming. All right to talk to her here in your office, alone? Sure, sure. You want me? Uh, Come in. The gentleman here wants to see you. Uh, I'll leave you alone. Thanks. I'm from Washington, Mrs. Blake. I'm a special agent. I've told the police everything that happened. Why can't I be left alone in... in... This is too big for a local police force, Mrs. Blake. Will you tell me all about it? Start at the beginning. It's... 
like ripping open a wound the minute it shows signs of healing. I know, but it's important. Nothing's important to me anymore. The last important thing was the telegram telling me that Bobby had been killed in action. I don't know exactly how to put it, Mrs. Blake, but look. Your son fought a war to get rid of enemies abroad. But what about our enemies at home? Someone's got to fight them, too. Oh, God. The hope I felt when the woman told me he wasn't dead. Maybe you can help us find her. Find the gang she's working with. When I think of the other mothers and wives, she'll poison the same way. My pulse stops. Tell me about it, Mrs. Blake. It began with a phone call. It'd been two weeks since the telegram came from Washington. I was only beginning to get hold of myself. I was getting ready to go out after supper when she phoned. She said her name was Margaret Taylor and she wanted to see me right away. She wouldn't tell me why over the telephone. So I told her to come right down. Mrs. Blake? Yes? I'm Margaret Taylor. Oh, come in. Mrs. Blake, I have some wonderful news for you. Regards from your son, Bob. Bob? Oh, you poor child. You must be mistaken. God rest his soul, my Bob is dead. Dead? Oh, no. Where did it happen? At the prisoner of war camp? At Comshaw nearly three weeks ago. He'd gone out on patrol. Oh, no, Mrs. Blake, that isn't true at all. I've just heard from my husband this morning. They're both together in a prisoner of war camp in North Korea. They're both alive and well. Dear God, make this true. It is true. I have his letter here. The letter. Let me see it. Yes. You read the letter, Mrs. Blake? Yes, the letter had been smuggled out of the camp. Sent special regards to me from Bob, my son. It mentioned something about their possible escape? Yes. Yeah. Said that a regular underground movement of prisoners was taking place between the North Koreans and our boys. It took money to do it, and it had to be done very secretly. The letter said to contact a certain man in San Francisco who could arrange it, if we could get the money. Did it say how much money? No. We had to contact this Mr. Kari in San Francisco to find out. She phoned San Francisco from your house? Yes. You spoke to him? Part of the time. He told me that it would take $2,500 to get my boy out of the camp. But first he made me promise not to say anything about this to anyone else. He said that any investigation by the authorities would only break the chain. That hundreds of other boys' escape might be jeopardized. And you believed him? I wanted to believe him. They count on that. Go on. Well, there isn't much more. The next day, I raised a loan on my house for $2,500. Then I met Mrs. Boyd. She'd raised the money, too. We airmailed it, special delivery, like we'd been told to. <laughs> That's all there is to it. Except that I never saw the girl again. You know that the call from San Francisco was traced to a phone booth in a drugstore. And that a man had checked out of the hotel where you'd sent your money the same day it arrived? Yes. And... I know now. And at no time were you suspicious? No. It all seemed so possible. And she'll be able to do the same thing to other women. If you had the chance, will you help stop this? Me? Why, 
How can I help? I'm just a... A A citizen. It's the citizens who have made the laws it's our job to enforce. I just don't see how. Supposing you were called on by your government to help beat this thing, would you? Well, if I thought I could. Have you been sent to ask me this? Yes. My chief has a plan worked out. Will you come with me to Washington? Me? To Washington? I've arranged it with your boss, if you're willing. We'll take the plane out of here tonight. The plane? I... Well, I have a a dread. We have no time to lose. Very well, then. We'll fly. The chief had left it up to me to determine if Mrs. Blake could fit in with his plan to trap these vultures preying on servicemen's families. And the more I got to know her, the more convinced I was that I had made a good choice. There was an underlying quality of determination and courage in her that quite belied her graying hair and tired eyes. These corridors seem endless. Here we are. Here's Mrs. Blake, Mr. Collins. Oh, glad you decided to come, Mrs. Blake. I only hope it's in my power to help, Mr. Collins. I think it is. Oh, uh, sit down, Mrs. Blake, and I'll explain our plan to you. Thank you. Now... On this wall map of the United States, you'll notice little groups of colored pins. Each pin represents a person who's been victimized the way you have, Mrs. Blake. Why, there are hundreds of them. This has been going on since World War II. You'll notice there are four pins in each group. One of them in a large city, the other three in outlying sections. They pick out an area using some big city as a key point. Then they finish and they move on. Most of the time, clear across the country. And they haven't been caught? They're clever. They work slowly and carefully. Sometimes they use men, sometimes women. They'll pose as servicemen, retired generals, anything. And you think I can help? How? Uh, Where do you live, Mrs. Blake? St. Cloud, Minnesota. All right, look at the map. Do you see anything peculiar about the group of pins around the St. Cloud area? No. Wait. There are only three pins instead of four. Mm. One in St. Cloud, one in Rochester, and one in Red Wing. If they follow their pattern, where can we expect the next fraud to take place? Uh, in what big city? Minneapolis or St. Paul. That's right. You see, our whole plan is based on the assumption that they'll make their next move in one of the Twin Cities. We're setting a trap for them, Mrs. Blake. I see. And I'm to be the bait. Yes. And if you feel you can't... Go on, please. All right, here's what we have in mind. We've rented a comfortable furnished house in St. Paul where we're going to establish the mother of a boy who has recently been killed overseas. In a day or two, Minneapolis and St. Paul papers will carry the story of a woman who has received a telegram from the War Department telling her that her son, Timothy Crane, has been killed in action. You will be Timothy Crane's mother. There was such a boy? Yes, Poor soul. What about the boy's real mother? She died a few months ago. She was spared. We'll give you a complete file on him. But the the girl, she'll recognize me. If she shows up, we'll arrest her at once. But it may not be she. They have others. I've been assigned to work on this case with you, Mrs. Blake. What do you say? I say, what are we waiting for? Although I must warn you... If that girl shows up, my first impulse will be grab her by the throat. (laughs) (laughs) You'd better keep your eye on temporary special agent Mrs. Blake, Fred. (laughs) Oh, and Fred, book passage on the first flight to St. Paul. 
St. Paul, we'd rented a neat frame house near a little lake on McCubbin Avenue. It was pretty well isolated against over-friendly or too curious neighbors. Special temporary agent Mrs. Blake was, to say the least, a thorough housekeeper, and that first day found me moving furniture and beating rugs. But I was well rewarded with a chicken dinner that more than compensated me for my six or seven hundred stiff muscle. It was quite late when I was ready to leave for my hotel. You're sure you can't stay here? Just tonight. Oh, I'd better not, Mrs. Blake. Are you afraid? Well, not really. Just lonesome. But then I've been lonesome most of my life. Remember where I'm staying in case you need me? Hotel Lowry? If I'm not in when you phone, leave a message. Just say uh, Mrs. Crane called. When will I see you again? Oh, I've got a busy day ahead of me tomorrow. I'm calling on the newspapers here to make sure your story gets front page. Then I've got to line up the local police. Your house will probably be under constant surveillance by tomorrow evening. You know, it's funny, Fred, but I never realized till now just how much protection the average person does have. It's a good thing to know. Takes the edge off a lot of gripes. (laughs) Well, good night, Ma. What made you say that? I... I really don't know. It just came out. Thank you, Fred. Good night. You're on your own now. Yes. I'm on my own. Next day, I set the operation up. The chief of police assigned Lieutenant Malley to work exclusively on the case with me and ordered a 24-hour watch in the house on McCubbin. That evening, the story broke on the front page of every paper in town. I spent the next few days just waiting for the break. It didn't come. Nobody had tried to contact Mrs. Blake. I was pretty discouraged when I phoned her the next morning. Hello? Hello? This is Fred. How are you doing? Oh, fine. There are three of the cutest children down the street. Remind me of Russ Burroughs, children up in Duluth. I'm kept busy all day baking cookies for them. (laughs) Nothing else? A phone call today from some woman who'd read the story in the paper. Offered me sympathy. Said she'd lost a boy, too, and felt the same way I did. Did she ask a lot of questions? Well, a few. Not too many. Did she say she wanted to come and see you? No. She said she might phone again. Did she leave a name? Just her first name. Alice, I think she said. I really don't believe she has anything to do with those Well, probably not. But if she phones again, try and get her name. And her voice. Remember it. When are you coming to see me? Surely some evening. Oh, can't take a chance. Well, it's so quiet here at night. You know what, Mr. Thompson? What? It's a lonely life we special agents lead, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, an agent's life has its lonely moments. The next two days were full of them. I had nothing much to do but to get to know the Twin Cities and wish I were home with Mary and the kids. I took in a couple of movies and spent so much time sightseeing around the Capitol building that I thought I was going to be picked up for vagrancy. The weekend finally dragged itself out. Monday morning, I sat around my room hoping for a call from Mrs. Blake. When it hadn't come by noon, I went down to the grill for some lunch. I caught the cashier waving at me. Phone for you, Mr. Thompson. Oh, thanks. Hello? I got a phone call I thought you should know about. The lady who called Friday called again just now. Good. Go on. She wanted to know if I'd be home this afternoon. She said she might drop by and visit me. Oh, I'm so excited. I know you are. And I think I know why. You do? I think so. You listen to her closely and you think... I'm positive. 
The lady I spoke to on the phone was was Margaret Taylor. <laughs> I left my lunch on the table and promised a cab driver a dollar for every minute under ten it took him to get me to Mrs. Blake's. He left me off at the corner, three dollars poorer. I got to Mrs. Blake's door and rang the bell. Come in. No. Stand here for a minute as though I'm trying to sell you something. Is there anyone watching us on the street? No. How about behind me, by the lake? Well, there's nobody there. All right. I'll follow you in. You think she'll come, don't you? She may. I've got to find a place to hide. But I've got to be able to see and hear everything. How about the kitchen? She wouldn't go there. No, she might. I had my eye on this closet under the stairs. Well, it's pretty small. I can make it. Uh, Yeah, it's all right. If it's the same girl, she might remember me. Well, if she does, I'll arrest her. If not, don't give it away. Well, that'll be hard. And I think of what she's done. I know, I know. But we want them all, not just one. Did she say what time she'd be here? Around two o'clock. That's about ten minutes. Um, better leave this door open, enough to look out. A car stopped outside. Is it the girl? No, it's a man in uniform. His arm is in a sling. Is the girl with him? No, he's alone. He's coming up the stairs. It's all yours, Mrs. Blake. Or should I say Mrs. Crane? Uh, Mrs. Crane? Yes. Oh, you're Tim's mother. I'd know you anywhere. He's described you to me so perfectly. You were a friend of Tim's. We were buddies. Well, come in. Won't you sit down? Thanks, I will. I'm afraid I'm still a little weak. Had this arm of mine pretty badly shot up at your one. Sure, That's where Tim was. I've got some very startling news for you, Mrs. Crane, and I'd kind of like to prepare you for it. What? What is it? I've a message for you from Tim. They say Tim is dead. They sent a telegram saying Tim is dead. He's not, Mrs. Crane. He's alive. I saw him just a week ago today. They said he died three weeks ago at your one. You're sure... You wouldn't do this to a poor mother. As true as I'm sitting here with you now, ma'am, Tim's alive. You saw him? Our company'd been sending a patrol out of Sherwan to test the enemy lines. I was alongside of Tim when we were ambushed. They got most of our boys. The rest they took prisoners. Tim and I and a couple of others. But the telegram... Well, they make a lot of mistakes like that, ma'am. But Tim is alive. They took us to a prisoner of war camp up near Pyongyang. I can't understand it. Why are you home and not he? I bought my way out, Mrs. Crane. I banked a lot of money with one of the QM sergeants. I got it to the commies and they let me out. Then they sent me home by plane. Did you tell the authorities about Tim being there? No, ma'am. I I thought I'd see you first. He asked me specially to see you right away. I wonder if you know how happy you've made me. I had the feeling all along that the telegram was wrong. We should get in touch with the authorities at once, don't you think? No, that that would ruin his chances of getting out the way I did, Mrs. Crane. And I don't have to tell you that a commie prison camp is no place to be. Oh, I I must get him out of there. Well, it, it takes money to do it. We can get him out. But it takes a lot of money. Money? When my son's life is at stake. Oh, I thought you'd feel that way about it. 
Now, I have the address of a liaison man in Los Angeles who can arrange the whole thing. Oh, then, then please, let's do it now. Oh, how about the money? $4,000 is what it takes. Cash? $4,000? I can get it. Yes, I, I can borrow that much. How soon? By tomorrow. I'll contact this man in Los Angeles and see if, if everything's all right. I mean, make sure that Tim is still around. Oh, you think... That's why we've got to move fast. Life isn't worth too much in a Korean prison of war camp. Contact him now, please. I'll try. Long distance? Long distance? I'd like to talk to Mr. Donald Carey at Gladstone 3962 in Los Angeles. Personal person? Uh, yes, person to person. Uh, come here, Mrs. Crane. You can listen in, too. Oh. Hello? Uh, Mr. Carey? Who is calling? Uh, Fred Baxter. I contacted you a few days ago when I was on the coast. Oh, yes, I remember. Uh, what is it, Mr. Baxter? I would like to arrange the same thing for a friend of mine. Timothy Crane. Also at Pyongyang? Yes. You have the money? Yes, but we want to report on him first. Uh, we want to know... That he is still there. Uh, I shall radio immediately. I can have that information for you sometime tomorrow. Where can I reach you? Uh, what time tomorrow? Oh, uh, in the afternoon, around 3 o'clock. Uh, what's your number, Mrs. Crane? Uh, Bradley, 0491, extension 3. Bradley, 0491, extension 3. You are prepared to negotiate? Speed is essential. Uh, tell Crane. him, yes. You'll have the money 24 hours after you call us tomorrow. Very good, sir. Goodbye. Oh, Mr. Baxter. I don't know how to thank you. Getting Tim out of that hole is all the thanks I want. After all, we're buddies. After he left, I phoned the lieutenant and told him to be sure and make no arrests, yet. I wanted to know where our bogus serviceman was staying. I wanted him kept under constant watch from that minute on. A record of any calls he made, people he spoke to, the works. Malley guaranteed me satisfaction or my money back. While I'd been making the call, Mrs. Blake had fixed some coffee. That saboteur. We should have arrested him. Not yet. Not yet. We have to prove fraud, not intent to commit fraud. When he takes the money from you tomorrow in the presence of a witness, then we have a case. What about the money? I said I'd have it for him tomorrow. I'll get you the 4000 nicely marked dollars for the occasion. I called the chief in Washington and told him what had developed. He said he would have every telephone operator in Los Angeles waiting for Mr. Carey's phone call. Then I went to one of the papers and borrowed some good photographic equipment. I wanted a shot of Mr. Baxter taking the marked money. From there, I went to my room and fixed up a package of marked currency. My chores done, I went back to McCubbin Avenue and whiled away a pleasant evening. When the uniformed con man walked up the front steps the next afternoon, the machinery was in order, ready to go. Come in, Mr. Baxter. You haven't told anyone about this, have you? Remember, like I told you, you might spoil it for thousands of other G.I.s if you did. Oh, of course not. I promised you. Uh, how about the money? Did you get it? Yes. $4,000. I'll take it. Hello? Oh, it's Los Angeles calling. You may as well take it. Uh, hello? Hello? Who is this? Timothy Crane's mother. 
The prison camp has been contacted by a shortwave radio. He is in good health and spirits. Oh, thank heaven. How soon can he be... Immediately the money reaches my hand. And if your government sees fit to fly him home, he should be with you in ten days. Ten days? Oh, it seems too wonderful. Goodbye. We cannot guarantee results unless the money is here as soon as possible. Oh, yes. Yes, you will get it. Everything's all right? Yes. You have his address. Yes. Uh, give me the money. Oh, here it is. Now, we'd better go to the post office and send it off. Oh, must I go along? I'm so tired. The excitement. Oh, there's a lot of money here, Mrs. Crane. You hardly know me. Nonsense. After all the trouble you've gone to for Tim's sake. Oh, please take it. All right, ma'am. But I better go now so I can get it on the late afternoon plane. I shall never forget this, Mr. Baxter. Forget it. When you're sweating it out over there, a buddy is the most precious thing you've got. I'll see you again, won't I? Well, I'm going up north for a few days. I'll call you when I get back. Goodbye, Mrs. Crane. Goodbye. The man with the marked money didn't know it, but he left under full police escort. About ten minutes later, Lieutenant Malley called. He's here. Stop him if he tries to leave. I'll be there in a few minutes. Oh, I forgot to tell you. He isn't where he was yesterday. He moved this morning. Promoted himself. He's at the Lowry now. The Lowry? That's where I'm staying. On the same floor, too. Four doors away. Makes it like home, don't it? Is he alone? No, uh, his wife. Well, I hope it's his wife. He's been hanging around all afternoon reading books and eating chocolates. You want her, too? Very much. I'll be seeing you, then. Right. Come on, Mrs. Blake. We're going for a fast car ride. Fifth floor. I'm enjoying this thoroughly, Fred, but do you mind explaining why you brought me along? Later. Lieutenant Malley? Oh, they're in the room. Haven't left. You'd better wait out here, Mrs. Blake. I do wish... Who's that? Room service. Come to pick up your lunch tray. Say, what is this? You ain't room service. Quit pushing on this door. Come on, out of the way. Okay, one, Sam. It's got a gun. It's a heist. You're wasting your time, man. <laughs> These kids are slipping. They don't even recognize a cop when they see one. Cops? What do you want with us? A package of $4,000 in marked money. Hand it over. What kind of money? Who's got money? You have $4,000 that you took from a Mrs. Crane on 1120 McCubbin Avenue. What's he talking about? Come off it. I've got eight lovely pictures of you in various poses, one of them holding a package of bills. Oh, I told you this one was coming too I, easy. I don't know what you're talking about, mister. You don't know anything about this uniform that's hanging in your closet? Oh, somebody must have left it there. I saw you coming in wearing it. And your arm was in the same sling. So I, I broke my arm. So what? Just a minute. That broken arm of yours. Let's take a look at it. Well, you don't. Yes, we do. Well, nicely tucked away in the cast. And all marked just the way we ordered it. You can leave me out of this, officer. I got nothing to do with it. I didn't even know what he was Too up. Too bad. Mally, you can let the lady in now. Right. You got nothing on me. What my husband's done has got nothing to do with me. Okay, Mrs. Blake. That's her. That's the woman. Me? 
I never saw this lady in my life. You never saw me in St. Cloud. No. You never came to me with a story that my son was still alive. Well, I'll, I'll show hey. you. Oh, Mrs. Blake, take it easy. Oh, get her away from me. You what haven't a got a chance, was... Mrs. Taylor. Lots of people are going to remember you. To their great sorrow, just let me out. Why, I'll show you. <laughs> hey, Thompson, you know what we better do? Take these two into protective custody. They aren't safe with Special Agent Blake around. <laughs> This is Douglas Fairbanks again. The capture of the bogus G.I. closes another chapter in the distinguished chronicle of our silent men. The special agents of all branches of our federal government who daily risk their lives to protect the lives of all of us. Next week, we will tell you the story involving the illegal sale of weapons in the file case entitled Souvenirs of War. Another venture undertaken for our protection by the silent men. The Silent Men is produced and directed by Warren Lewis. Tonight's case was written by Lewis and Russoff and transcribed in Hollywood. Only the names and places were fictional. Featured in tonight's cast were Bill Tracy, Virginia Gregg, Anne Diamond, Tom McKee, Jack Crucian, and Kurt Martell. Your announcer is Don Stanley. Douglas Fairbanks may currently be seen in the motion picture, Mr. Drake's Duck. Listen again next week and every week to other exciting cases involving the law enforcement adventures of the special agents of our federal government. For they are the silent men. Beginning next week on most NBC stations, you will hear the silent men at a new earlier hour on Sundays. Yes, beginning next Sunday, listen for the silent men at this same day, but at a different earlier time period. Please consult the radio guide in your local newspaper for the time of broadcast of the silent men beginning next Sunday. And remember, for fine musical listening, be sure to tune to this station of the NBC Radio Network tomorrow evening. Every Monday means music on NBC, and tomorrow you'll hear the finest in melodic listening. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Welcome back. Well, I thought that the obituaries racket portrayed in Dragnet, and I think at least another... Uh, program. I forget whether it was the lineup. I thought that was one of the lowest, you know, that was the lowest thing you could do to someone who had lost a uh, relative, uh, you know, particularly someone who was a gold star uh, parent. But uh, the Silent Men story is definitely way worse than uh, coming to someone who lost a loved one with a phony watch that you claim they made a down payment on before they died and collecting the balance from the loved ones. I mean, this is just evil. And, uh, you know, I, I think that they should have just left those two alone with our temporary special agent. And I did like the way that uh, the uh, character played by Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Uh, worked off of her. It was a really interesting story. 
one thing I did find kind of odd in this one, and I don't know whether this was what the government actually did or if it was a writer's uh, liberty, is that uh, they went ahead and flew her out to Washington, D.C., uh, from Minnesota, so she could return for her undercover operation in Minnesota. And all she did uh, in Washington, D.C., really, was meet with the chief. It seems like if Agent Thompson was trusted to make this decision, that the chief should be like, okay, well, if she agrees, then uh, have her us uh, call her. I'll have her get on an extension. Instead, they uh, take flights t uh, to D.C. and back from Minnesota for what's portrayed to be about a 10-minute meeting. Now, on one hand, it could be a situation where it's just the writers who adapted this that, you know, meeting with the chief or commissioner is just such a part of what they do that, you know, you gotta write that scene in even if this is, you know, a totally unnecessary plane trip. The other possibility is that the government actually did this. Uh, now, of course, this may seem like a big waste of money, but it is possible that there were other vital things that only could have happened in Washington, D.C., that uh, she needed to come there for that we just miss in this uh, program because we don't have time to portray it. On the other hand, it could just have been a big waste of money. But at any rate, they did actually uh, capture the criminals, and so we definitely give them that. All right, well, uh, listener comments and feedback now. And uh, we have uh, this comment from uh, Double Tap and Hillbilly. And uh, he writes, I got hooked on Armed Forces Radio in Germany as an army brat. I've loved radio shows ever since. Well, thanks so much for the comment. And I think that's definitely a, you know, a significant subset of our uh, listeners uh, whose first exposure uh, was to the Armed Forces uh, Radio Services or Armed Forces Radio and Television Services, uh, depending on uh, what country they were in. And I, I would also add, it's part of the reason why uh, Bob Bailey's Johnny Dollar uh, became a lot more popular than it used to be. Uh, there were a lot of fans, you know, way back like in the 70s and 80s, uh, who you know, the original uh, collectors who were not really as big a fan of that series. Uh, but for so many people who were uh, overseas, uh, and you know, as kids, and you know, they got uh, hooked on old time radio, a lot of it was Johnny Dollar, uh, Bob Bailey's uh, Johnny Dollar. Uh, that was their uh, first exposure. And, you know, as those, you know, fans have, you know, grown in number, yeah, I, that's definitely, it's been a boost for old-time radio and uh, how, you know, a good portion of those who remember it got involved was through uh, 
uh, being in the uh, military family overseas. Because even though we talk about the golden age of radio ending in 1962 in the U.S., it continued to be uh, replayed overseas. Thanks so much for your comment and for your support. I want to go ahead and thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Russell, Patreon supporters since November 2016, currently supporting us at the Master Detective level of $15 or more per month. Well, that will do it for today. If you do enjoy this podcast, I do encourage you to rate it and review it uh, wherever you uh, listen to the podcast. Join us back here tomorrow for Public Domain Video Theater. We'll have an episode of Federal Men. And then on Monday, uh, Casey Crime Photographer, and we'll be back next Saturday, another episode of The Silent Men. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.